Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, I hope you do, please consider leaving me a review, a rating, something, please. I need the validation anyway on the show today, the beauty of life potentially post-pandemic means you can see people in real life again. And I did just that here at Offscript Media Studios. I'm riffing this intro, by the way, because I'm excited to tell you that I physically had actual people here in the studio on Fulton Street in Manhattan. And those guests were Liz Cormier May, who is the CEO of a company called Mamagen, And Marty Kaiser, who's like this crazy investor, amazing human being guy who does all sorts of stuff in diagnostics. Phenomenal conversation. You can tell right away, we're here. We're looking at each other. It's amazing. Great chemistry, great conversations. Enjoy the show. All right, friends, not only is it amazing to physically see people in real life again, it's amazing to see two physical people occupying the same physical space at the same physical time, right here live at Upskirt Media Studios, Marty Kaiser and Liz Cormier May. Did I say that right? I botched it. No, you're close. Cormier May. Cormier May. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. A, it brings new meaning to say, great to see you. Likewise. Feels good to be in person too. It we sure even does. had to turn the air on because it got so hot in here. We weren't used to this much well, body heat. Listeners this close can't see together. how many few buttons are buttoned on your shirt right now. <laughs> Hope it doesn't get any hotter in here. I'm going to play some Marvin Gaye. <laughs> let's do it. Yes, <laughs> let's get it on. And I'm just like flummoxed that I'm actually seeing real people. We've been starting to do real people here in this, which was the original intent of building this company. Of course. To have these live, just personal eye-to-eye contact to just get great chemistry and conversations. And along the journey of COVID, I managed to meet you guys. And because, Marty, you've been on this show, listeners, you can go back in the catalog and check the Marty Kaiser Show. Best LinkedIn stalking date ever. (laughs) It worked out. It did work out. I had you back. <laughs> He's a true bromance. <laughs> it really was, right yeah. out the gate. And then Liz came along because he hired you to run one of his properties. Yes. Which is amazing. Like, oh, by the way, Matt, here's Liz. Like, was she here before? No, she's new. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a storied history in startups and health and running companies, too. I was like, I, I didn't even know your backstory until Marty's like, oh, read all this crap about her. <laughs> so just let everyone know. Like, you're like, like a unicorn of a whole bunch of things. But you know, summarize yourself. 
I am. I'm a little bit different. I started as a medicinal chemist, so I'm a science geek at heart. It's what makes me tick. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, And I just quickly got disheartened at the bench as a chemist because I realized I wasn't ever going to make an impactful difference in cancer research. So I figured, well, the next best way to do that and to kind of find something a little bit more in line with my personality would be to move over to the commercial side um, and really focus on diagnostics because I think that's where we can make a tangible difference, especially in oncology. If we could find the right people to get to the right treatment at the right time, we've got a shot. So esters, ethers, or ketones, pick your one. Oh, how about this one? Um, Vanderwell's forces. And, uh, oh, Vanderwell. Wow. Did you research all this just for me? No, no. I have an AP chemistry chip of RAM in my brain from high school. I don't oh. know why. It's still there. It's with the AOL CDs and floppy disks. My favorite organic chemistry joke is, don't worry, it takes alkynes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Marty doesn't get I'm that. I'm staying out of this. <laughs> like I, that was the, the best awkward silence. How do you follow that? I'm staying out of this one. I have a marketing degree from Coastal Carolina University, and I failed high school biology. So I really have no business being in this business. So we'll than, avoid Punnett squares. Yes, we should. Pro- well, th- that's easy, though. Not for him. Come on, they do that in high school. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> it's like the, It's like a more complicated Venn diagram. Yeah. But like with four circles. Well, I mean, but you could see how there's so much complementary skill set between us, right? I mean, it it takes the kind of the business side, the science side, everything sort of comes together and, and, you know, it's really been a great ride so far. The hot and the cold are just so intense. Put it together. It just makes sense. There you have it. Boom. That's it. That should be our theme song when in we walk in the room. Is that a frozen right? That's a frozen. Olaf. That's Olaf. Yeah. That's Olaf, she man. It. She so, knew it. Come on. Oh, my God. Oh, that's great. So what was it like to transition? I mean, I get the the utter frustration of being in academia and science. Yeah. Like, were you just uh, upset and frustrated because you couldn't get done what you wanted or that the entire structure of the career itself doesn't have that unlimiter? Totally both. So I was working for a really great pharmaceutical company, top 10. Um, I loved the the company, the culture, what it stood for, but I quickly realized I just wasn't going to be able to do anything meaningful or see it translate to actually improving somebody's life. And truthfully, as many great minds as we have working specifically in oncology, I just don't know that we'll ever get to a point where we cure cancer. So I think our best bet is to get ahead of it. And the best way to get ahead of it is with diagnostics. Well, we can debate what the word cure means, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're discussing this as the Cancer Mavericks documentary is currently being listened to by countless thousands of people. And the word cure mm-hmm. is, I think, self-defining at this point. If you listen to episode one, they talk about how you kind of just died right away, mostly back mm-hmm. in the 60s. The idea of cure wasn't even a word yet. And then here they are, you know, kicking off the National Cancer Act of 1971, and Mary Lasker's promise to the country is a cure for cancer by 1976. She used the word cure. Mm -hmm. And no one knew what that really meant. Does it mean you never get it in the first place? Or if you get it, boom, Star Trek, you're done. Right. Right. But today it means different nuanced things. Marty, what's your take on the word cure? There's a lot of nuance to it. I mean, I think from the diagnostic side, we always like to think the most near-term impact we can have in getting close to a cure is stage one. The earlier you detect something, the better your chances are, the less you know, treatment, the less 
advanced treatments that you that you need, less chemo, less radiation, less surgery. And so that's in the near term what we're really working towards. Um, I think beyond that, we're trying to think about preventative measures, ways to predict things before they even happen and get you know closer to knowing, hey, you have X percent likelihood of getting this disease within the next 12 months, you know, per se, but following that on with a more reliable detection diagnostic screening tool that says, all right, well, if I know I'm 90% likely to get a disease in the next 12 months, I should really be taking other diagnostic tests and screening tools to get ahead of it so that I can detect it when it does rear its head and get rid of it as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's not apples to apples, but like, if you kind of know you're going to have a baby in nine months, you should probably prepare to yeah. have that baby. But how many people in the disease space want to know they have a baby in the form of a critically death life disease? Right. Well, I think I think that depends. I think if there's an action you could take to somehow improve the outcome, then knowing is a good thing. If if knowing means that you can't do anything about it, well then I don't I don't know. I think that's a different I think that's a different story, but we're focusing in areas where you can do something about it to improve your outcome. If somebody told me, "Hey Liz, I could tell you whether or not you're going to have um Lou Gehrig's disease, but there's nothing we can do about it if we tell you your answer is yes." Well, then I don't know I'd want to know that. So I think there's a subtle difference between the benefit of knowing. Do you think people really do want to know? And the reason I asked that question is because we've done a lot of work in the patient community. Mm -hmm. Like, do you wish you'd have known? Of course, because they had it already. And if you're at risk because like your mom or your dad had it, mm -hmm. you're probably more predisposed to care that you are knowingly at risk for something. But to right. the average person who's just eating Bush's baked beans, not a sponsor, living on Prilosec, mm -hmm. you know, and, and guzzling them down, whatever they are, do they really get? the idea that they could be at risk for something with primary care? Well, I'll tell you this. 30 million people cared enough to figure out what part of the world they're from with Ancestry.com and 23andMe. So I'd venture to say, yeah, there's a decent amount of the population who cares enough to know whether or not they're at risk for a disease. If they care that much about finding a third cousin somewhere in Asia, then I think they care about their everyday health. Marty, your take? I'd follow on with that with looking at BRAC analysis, which mm -hmm. Liz successfully launched into the women's health market several years ago. That tells women what their percentage likelihood of, of getting breast cancer is at some point in their lifetime. And they sell a lot of BRCA tests every single year. So I think people do. And I think, you know, back to the statement I made earlier, knowing you're at an 85% risk of getting breast cancer at some point in your life is interesting, but it's really scary too, because what do you do with that information? You don't know if you're going to get it for sure. You don't know when you're going to get it for sure. You don't know, you know how bad it's going to be when it rears its head. So having that piece of the information, which people are already adopting and, and accepting and, and kind of building into their routine screening is interesting. But for, you know, what we're trying to do is take that one step further and give people actionable tools that they can actually use to say, all right, yes, you have it or no, you don't. Right. So my flowchart in my head is that, yes, Ancestry, 23andMe, all these genetic kits that tell you you're allergic to coffee or like this is your diet or stop eating Twinkies, which you don't need a genetic test to tell you to stop eating Twinkies. Right. Hostess, not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but to the extent that we used to be or maybe still are reliant on our general physician's annual checkup to tell us about things, is this shift toward consumer products? a better gateway to maybe have a conversation with your doctor that wouldn't normally be prompted if you went there first. 
I think it is. Um, I think, you know, the average GP or um, internist is taxed to the extreme. He or she, they do not have enough time to learn about all of the different options out there. They don't have enough time to sit down with their local pharma and diagnostic reps and learn about what's new. Um, They barely have enough time to keep up with the journals that are coming out on top of seeing their patients. So, there's a bottleneck in how much one person can take on. And so if people are under this illusion that doctors are going to know everything, they're not. They're just people and they're doing the best they can. So it really is, there is some onus that needs to be on us as the consumer and or patient. Um, And luckily, we live in a world where so much information is at our fingertips. Now, that's a blessing and a curse, right? Because a lot of information isn't always accurate and or relevant to what is important to you. And sometimes you need a scientific mind to distinguish those things. But I think, you know, Everly Well has done a really good job at showing that a direct-to-consumer model can be helpful without crossing the lines of pretending to be a doctor or giving an actual diagnostic result. And people respond to that. Um, So I think, you know, companies like Everly Well and Julia Cheek, I think she's a phenomenal CEO. They've set the tone for companies like ours to come in when the time is right and offer a direct-to-consumer product that is helpful, easily interpretable, and opens up a dialogue between patient and physician. So Marty, are we at a point now where doctors used to be pissed? And I mean, all, all props to doctors. We throw them under the bus way too much. That is wholly unfair. I have best friends since like first grade who are like full-blown chief medical officers of hospitals. And I totally get this. But it used to be that, oh, you're showing up with like 70 pages of Google printouts. Mm-hmm. Are we showing up now with like genetic apps that tell doctors, I have this? And are they prepared to receive consumers coming out with like what they might think is anecdotal versus say a Cologuard, which is FDA approved? A little bit of both. So the technology is there where people can be more empowered to get their genetic testing and and present that to their physicians. I think the physicians are now getting more comfortable with that as opposed to saying, all right, well, you're a Google, you know, a Google keyboard warrior. You just came in and now you're trying to tell me how to do my job. That that is shifting away. I think the physicians really see the value in some of these diagnostics. And so I think one of the last things uh, we talked about on the last show that I was on was taking that top down and bottom up approach of educating the physicians on all of these things, but also empowering the, the actual consumer and the patient so that they can come together and figure out the best path forward for them, personalized medicine. So how does that work in your case, Liz, with like breast health professionals and OBs perhaps? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Mammagen is a women's health diagnostic powerhouse. It has a flagship product in breast cancer. And this isn't a test that, you know, everybody would take when they wake up in the morning, right? This is a test for women who are under 40 who normally wouldn't be eligible for regular screening like mammograms and they find a lump. Well, what do they do? They call their OBGYN and they go in and they go through a very uh, routine diagnostic workflow. They go for their first mammogram. Normally, it's their first if they're under 40. Then it's normally going to be inconclusive because a mammogram was never designed for women under 40. Women under 40 have dense breasts and a low prevalence of disease and the imaging world was never designed. And not to interrupt, Mm. mammography was invented by men. In 1913. Yes. Yeah. Most everything in medicine. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> put this in context. It's one thing if it works, but if men figure this out for women's boobs. Yeah. 
not a good recipe. Anyway, continue. No, I mean, and 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 truthfully, mammograms serve a purpose. Um, they absolutely do. They just were never designed to screen women under forty. We have lumpy boobs, and it makes it difficult. So then they go on to an ultrasound. Well, guess what? Ultrasound also really wasn't designed for this population of women. And then most of them go on to what turns out to be an unnecessary breast biopsy. So what if instead of all of that, all of that unnecessary healthcare spend, all of that unnecessary worry, there is a simple blood draw or saliva test you could take that told your doctor, yes, she has it or no, she doesn't. And if the answer is yes, she does, then she goes through the normal routine of diagnostic testing to figure out, okay, where is it? What kind is it? How big is it? What's the best way to move forward with treatment? Um, But there's a lot that can be improved by getting that answer very quickly, very inexpensively. And within days of seeing your OB and her feeling the lump and saying, yeah, Liz, you know what? That does feel a little bit solid. I'm a little concerned. Let's have a simple test and see what's going on. Back with our guest after the break. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, Marty, we're back, and I want to talk to you about, like, we had you on the show before. We mentioned that at the uh, the top of the show. But you're living in a space where you can get to help give birth to and incubate and accelerate companies like Mammogen. How do you pick and choose what you think is going to work against the backdrop of how the hell these things actually can get into consumers' hands? Mm. Uh, So the first thing I'd say is the number one reason startups fail is not because of lack of cash flow. That's the number two reason. The number one reason they fail is because they're not solving a big enough problem. So for me, I'm always looking at the biggest addressable market, 
with the greatest unmet need to positively impact the lives of as many people as possible. That's step one. To sort of take a lighter take on it, I like an occasional cigar. I like an occasional martini. And I'm married to a wife with three daughters. I have two sisters, three sister-in-laws, a mother and a mother-in-law. So it only made sense that my first company would be in lung cancer, the second in liver disease, and the third in women's health. So there's definitely a business and sort of finance aspect to it, but a very real practical human approach to what the way I think about the companies that I'm going to create. On the finance side of it, you know, I spent about 13 years in asset management. A lot of the investment strategies that I was raising capital for were very heavy in biotech and healthcare. And it doesn't take a long time to see the wasted time and the cost and the risk of getting products from you know idea, from concept all the way to commercialization, whether it's diagnostics or therapeutics. There's such a misallocation of human and financial resources in the industry. And so I spent a number of years trying to figure out ways to flip that upside down and, and really find a more, a more efficient way to use capital and to, uh, and to use people to build these companies more quickly, to reduce the time and cost and, and risk of research and development. A lot of that has to do with the way we integrate data, uh, technology, and capital. And so we've been able to put that to work over the last two years. Right now, we have three companies that are all thriving, accelerating, Liquid Lung, Hepgene, and, and Mamagen, where Liz, uh, the company that Liz leads. And up to this point, we've developed, uh, we've discovered, validated, and protected 214 novel biomarkers that can allow us to detect earlier, diagnose easier, and treat better for lung cancer, liver disease, and, and breast cancer right now. And, and so I think the transition point here is we've done a really good job getting there very quickly, very efficiently, and discovering truly novel science that nobody else has uncovered to this point. And we have planted our flag in the ground uh, in terms of our IP and our patent filing in those three massive, massive areas where there's a huge need. But now it's really time to look forward and take it from the science and really turn it into a commercially viable product that we can get into the hands of the patient. And right now, uh, you know, in partnership with Liz, we're working to take the next phase of this development and make sure it's just as efficient as the first phase of it. And so far, that's going really well. So again, I, I want to better understand like the how a bill becomes a law issue. Like you start with this great idea. Sidebar, biomarkers are like the Yahtzee of pharma. <laughs> right. It's this word that no normal person understands that they think we should just do shows and explain and, and educate about biomarker. What the fuck is a biomarker? Right. Separate show. Right. Yeah. But that notwithstanding, basically, it's like the shit inside you that makes you you done. Right. That gets fucked up or not fucked up. Spirit. I just there you go. There's your biomarker. That, no, that, that's you just it. saved yourself the show. Or make something work or makes it not work. I got to right? get that little that one segment has to be sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> but. In terms of great idea, great diagnostic, we have this biomarker, it does these things. How does it actually, forget the funding, forget the ideas, mm -hmm. how does it get into the hands of a human being at CVS? Mm -hmm. And if it's not FDA approved, mm -hmm. like anything at like Vitamin Shop, for example, how is anyone going to take it seriously? That's I'm going to really, toss that to Liz. Yeah. You know, she's the chief commercial expert here. That's a really good question. So, And the answer to that has changed drastically over the last, say, decade. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if something wasn't FDA approved, a physician wouldn't touch it. A patient would be nervous to take it. And that's still true with therapeutics. But we're talking about diagnostics, which are different, right? So diagnostics are the tests somebody takes to give them an answer. It could be, hey, is this drug going to work? Or it could be, do I have a disease? That is a very different landscape. So in the last 10 years, 
a lot of companies have moved away from the FDA approved model because it's slow, it's expensive, and it actually it inhibits a company's ability to get something into the hands of patients, no matter how good it may be. So a lot of labs and companies walk down what's called an LDT route, which means a lab-developed test. Thank you for de-acronyming that. You're welcome. And that is not to say that there are not rules that govern a lab-developed test. There absolutely are from multiple different societies. So there are still eyes watching what happens, what development goes into it, what kind of data comes out of it. So it's not stamped by the FDA, but it is still very well-researched, very well-documented, published, and then in the hands of patients in a safe way. Um, And most companies do that because it saves time and money. Um, It allows you to start to collect revenue from the market while you walk down the more expensive and longer-term FDA route. And I will give the FDA some props because I think they realized that innovation was being stifled a bit by the traditional FDA approval route. And they've created new avenues specific for device and diagnostic companies, um, the breakthrough device designation, for example. So it allows companies like us to interface with the FDA, which is absolutely a good idea. You need to interface early and often. They need to know who you are, even if you're going to launch your product as an LDT, the lab developed test. Um, so they, they're making it easier for innovation to cross those regulatory bounds. You hear that, FDA? You got to be in this room with us. <laughs> Dear FDA people, I don't think I know them. Scott Gottlieb, we're calling your name. There yeah, you go. there you go, Scott. This By one's for name. you. <laughs> it's like when you point out in baseball that you're going to hit the home run. <laughs> return, <laughs> Scott. Return my DM. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, and we're both in Connecticut, Scott. We're your neighbors. <laughs> so let's go back to this other conversation about Yes, fine. I understand. Consumers can embrace whatever they want. It's their choice. It's it's, it's free market. It's economics. It's supply, whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. Here's the thing I can buy. How do you then get to, again, let, let's channel Joe Abdo. Joe was on the show before. Joe has a diagnostic with his company in esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. Similar to how you have a test where young women can know if they're predisposed to something where they can actually have a conversation with someone who might know what to do with that information Here's a product that could potentially let you know that you will have esophageal cancer one day. If you stop doing this now, you will never have esophageal cancer, right? How do you tell like every GI, like every OB, where does that funnel come down to in the trades, in the journals, in the practice of standard of care? When you're talking to those doctors. The trades and journals, absolutely. But Liz, uh, you've got to talk about the community focus that we're building here because this is a true game changer in that top down, bottom up that we talked about. Yeah. So traditionally, there are two ways you get a new product or your message out to physicians to use it. Um, One is through publications, like you said, the journal. And those are presented at all of the major meetings throughout the year, ASCO being a big one. And the other way, and this is the way that actually creates usage and market adoption, is through reps. So you hire a sales force to go in and hopefully be a resource to the physicians as they're learning about your test, how it fits in with a traditional diagnostic algorithm, what's new about it, what's different about it, how is it better, how is it worse. And a good rep will give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's limited, especially in times of COVID when they're not letting people who don't need to be in their office in there, right? So this has always been kind of a, a 
a mind trick for me, not understanding why diagnostic companies don't invest in creating a community around their disease state, around their product, around their mission, because there's nothing more forceful or powerful than a group of people who believe in a mission. They will do anything. They will ask the right questions. They will bring information to their physicians. They will tell their friends. Um, it's the best marketing you could have as a company. And so we at Man and the rest of the Ivy Bioholdings companies are spending quite a bit of time creating these amazing communities of patients, of people who have dedicated their lives to helping those patients. Um, so I'll give you an example at Mammogen. We are in the midst of partnering with a lot of great companies, some that focus on exercise routines for breast cancer patients. Because guess what? A lot of breast cancer patients after reconstructive surgery can't pick their arms up over their head. Well, it's really hard to work out if you can't pick your arm up over your head, right? You might have to do something different. We're partnering with um, groups that are creating really novel things like breast warmers that you can stick in your bra to keep your boobs warm because reconstructed boobs are cold all the time and that's really uncomfortable. Talking about all of the gaps in care, simple things like how do you interview a breast surgeon? What questions do you ask? How do you know if you like him or her? So all of these things that are outside of what our actual diagnostic test offers, but that I would argue are equally as important because it's part of your journey and we are not going to be the diagnostic company that gives you a test, sends you a bill and says, good luck on your journey. Um, we want you to remain part of our ecosystem because we truly believe that you as our community is going to fuel market adoption and market adoption is going to help to bring more people into our community. So you must do this for a living. I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, what fascinates me about this entire process is we're seeing the consumerification mm -hmm. of consumer products and services. What I'm hearing from you and what I understand to be especially like if you're a nonprofit in a disease space, you have a patient crowd, but they might not necessarily be as influential in talking to a bunch of doctors because they're talking about a drug. Right. Versus you're building basically a niche, almost like brand ambassadorship program mm -hmm. of women who can exactly. testify to this product. It's like, yeah, I like Gatorade, so should you. You know, like it's Absolutely. basically, but it's a phenomenal way to look at society at large and how we can, I'm not going to say skirt around what you said they're hopefully adapting the FDA. You're making a consumer protection, consumer empowerment issue. That to me is the defining strategy for what's going to happen in the next decade. Marty, you agree? Absolutely agree. So what other companies are you working on that may take this approach? Yeah, so we want to start this, you know, community focus in Mammogen with women's health. Women are, you know, the most motivated patient base you could possibly, you know, interact with. So that's really where we wanted to start and make it the most impactful. I would say uh, the same would absolutely be true in lung cancer, where you're seeing massive spikes in the prevalence of, or, you know, incidence of lung cancer in never smokers, and particularly in female never smokers. You're seeing a really significant rise there. Um, you're seeing a, a huge issue here in liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which by the way, I do this for fun sometimes. I walk into a local Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks and I ask people at random, hey, have you ever heard of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? <laughs> and I can tell you 10 out of 10 times, nobody has ever even heard of it. But do you expect them to? Is that, is that, well, are, are no, we going to get to a point where they're going to say, oh, of course, that's tattooed on my yeah, arm? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I don't expect them to, but I do it because it, it fuels my mission. And so, 
you know, when you look at that disease, this is highly correlated with the rise in type 2 diabetes and obesity, particularly in, in the U.S. and other developed countries. And in the U.S. alone, there's an estimated 100 million people living with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Don't even know it, never even heard of it. Currently, there's no way to detect it. It doesn't show up in uh, routine liver enzyme tests. It's progressive and it's asymptomatic. So as you go on with your life, not knowing about this and not having any way to detect it early, it gets worse and worse. So and this company of yours has the mammogen of lung cancer. Of liver disease and of lung cancer. Right. Yeah. Liquid lung is, is centered around a flagship program in lung cancer and hep genes and liver disease. So as a corollary, then we're talking about patients and consumers learning that there's a way to detect something that their doctor may not necessarily tell them about, but at scale, did you hear about this thing that I knew about that you should? And then you get this patient community or these consumer advocates telling the community, telling the doctors, here's something that mattered to me. I think it worked. You should do it too. Exactly. Absolutely. It's the same concept as something going viral, right? One person has an idea, a thought, and they put it out there and the world adopts it. I mean, it's not altogether different than what we're trying to do. I mean, remember the ice bucket challenge? <laughs> I mean, that, the, the that got millions of people on the their difference feet here, taking action. The thing that we're really trying to make approach this differently with is tying a solution to the movement. Mm -hmm. Have to have a solution to the movement. Yep. Otherwise, it fizzles out. So this geeky speak I've had on this show of like market access challenges, like how a bill becomes a law, right? The, the metaphor I'm using, it seems like it's solving itself to the power of consumption, the regular normal Joe with a wallet or Jane with a wallet in your case. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a piece of it for sure, you know, but I mean, we can't completely discount some of the quote unquote normal things that bring products to market. Right. And so under IV bio holdings, we're taking a bit of a different approach for our companies. We're not, we're not building a hugely expensive Clea lab that takes a ton of time and capital and resources. We're not hiring organic sales forces, you know, by the hundreds. Um, we're really taking more of a partnership approach. One, because it conserves our capital. It continues to build value very quickly. And because our R&D process is so hyper-efficient, it just wouldn't make sense for us to tie up time and capital and value in what we're doing for both our patients as well as our shareholders in this very long, drawn-out traditional model. Um, so we're doing a lot of things in really – it's the inverse of how most people do it, but it's working very well. And I, I would venture to say that we're, it's going to continue to work very well. The pieces are all there, the traditional and, you know, in, including some non-traditional, we're just rearranging the puzzle in a yeah. different way. And it has to be, you, you can't look at the way it's done and, and say that it really truly works. <laughs> Things take a decade and, you know, cost a billion dollars and nine out of 10 times they fail. That, that, that's got to change. I love that things are starting to solve themselves. All right, last question. Going back to the reps, right? I think reps get a bad rep. See what hey, I, I did there? I, I started as a rep. I was a rep once. But I'll see myself out because I just made a really <laughs> bad dad joke. But in terms of, you know, sales rep going to talk about like a Keytruda for yeah. small cell lung cancer mm -hmm. versus a rep going to say, here's something really cool that we can sell that actually works and does these things right away. It's like, it's not about will cure you someday. It's about you can try to not get cancer today. Mm -hmm. Are the engagements with these doctors, these medical, are they different? Is there different karma or chemistry in these interactions than if they were normally working for like a big box pharma? It's definitely different. So I've done both. I've worked for the big box pharma. I've done diagnostic companies of all sides, all sizes rather. Um, and it's definitely different. Um, one, because large pharma companies have literally thousands of boots on the ground. And so one doc can have 
five different people coming in in their geography talking to them about the same thing. There's a bit of a burnout factor there for the doc. They don't they don't have the time and and you run out of things to talk about <laughs> unless there's something new. When you're a small diagnostic or mid-sized diagnostic company, um, there's usually only one person calling on each doc per geography. So you actually do build a friendship, a relationship, a, a, a professional respect. You become a resource. Um, so that's a very different dynamic. And then there's some things that are, you know, that are that are the same. I mean, you you have your sales pitch, you have your message, you, the end goal is the same. You want to incite usage. Um, but I think there is definitely a difference between um, selling a diagnostic as a small to mid-sized company versus selling a you know, a hypertension drug when there's 10 other people selling the same exact thing to the same doc. And I'll add to that. So Exact Sciences, their Cologuard product got FDA approved in August of 2014. In the second half of that year, they sold 4,000 tests. The very next year, they sold over 100,000 tests. Last year, they did almost 2 million tests. That's a massive amount of growth in a six-year period. The conversations are really resonating in you know both the traditional sales rep to physician model, and I think it'll only be hyper accelerated when we take this more bottoms up, uh, ground grassroots effort. And docs are getting used to hearing about diagnostics. Remember, that's new, right? Docs are used to hearing about new drugs out there for across any disease state. That's all they that's all they had in their toolbox for years and years. So when you think about diagnostics as an industry compared to therapeutics, it's still in its industry. But there's enough data now and enough voices and enough usages out there where docs are saying, yeah, I, I can I can see how this fits in. I can see how it makes a difference. I can see how it improves the way I'm able to treat my patient. So it, the, the dialogues are really starting to shift more towards earlier detection, earlier care, rather than waiting till somebody walks in and it's too late. I have been educated. <laughs> Liz Cormier-May, CEO of Mamagen and God, this guy over here with the shirt, I can't, I can't Marty Kaiser, <laughs> Ivy Bioholdings, return champion on the show. Thanks, guys. For real life, real people right here. It's a blast. This Thank is you, awesome. Man. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.